February 25th, 2021. But I think the reason that this matters is that at some point, the federal government will have to decide when the pandemic is over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And while I think we might want that decision to be grounded firmly in some sort of epidemiological reality, I think the very real possibility is that this determination will be fundamentally like sociological and and political. Welcome to the death panel. So today, the day we're recording this is May 11th, 2023. And at the end of the day today, the official declaration of a federal public health emergency for COVID-19 in the United States will end. So to mark this occasion, we have something a little different and unusual for you today. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about how exactly we wanted to mark the end of the public health emergency. You know, do we focus on this angle? Do we want to focus on that angle? Is this another opportunity to simply repeat ourselves that this isn't over until everyone is safe? And in the end, something unusual happened. Mm -hmm. So as we were talking on Monday in the patron feed about the way that this moment, the end of the public health emergency was likely to engender a lot of attempts to make or really deny uh, meaning from these last three years and to attempt to close the book on the ongoing crisis, um, we thought to look back ourselves. And one of the things we wanted to reflect on was this rather clunky terminology that we came up with together many years ago uh, Mm -hmm. to explain what was going on around us and what we saw, which we referred to as and have been using since as uh, the quote unquote sociological production of the end of the pandemic. So Artie and I listened back to a set of conversations that he, Phil, and I had in early 2021 when this first became a central theme of our analysis. And when we listened back to the conversation that really like finally crystallized that terminology, not to be dramatic, but it felt like the weight of that normalization process just really fell over us. Yeah. So today, uh, I'm just going to say this right now, today, May 11th, the day the Biden administration selected to mark the very end of the public health emergency, just exactly 1,200 days from when the public health emergency began. Hold on, just let that sink in for a second. Exactly 1,200 days from the first day. Today, we have nothing profound to say. Nothing to add, really. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to continue to have more to say in the future. uh, But today, we're going to share our version, Death Panel's version of a moment of silence if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of bowing to the arbitrary end date that's you know set to ensure the perpetuation of GDP and allow uh, Biden to have declared victory over the virus by 2024, instead of getting caught up in this completely fake event, uh, standing in as an end date, you know, doing something like chiming in with our own summary of events thus far. Um, instead, we're going to turn back the clock and leave you with this conversation from February 2021 that says everything that we actually want to say today. Mm -hmm. And now before you switch this off, just trust us, everything that you're about to hear, which again, 
was recorded just weeks into the Biden presidency feels as true today as it was then. This conversation was originally called Meaning Production at 500,000 Dead. It was the episode we recorded to mark the 500,000th U.S. COVID death and to try and understand what was about to happen based on everything we understood at the time about Biden's intentions coming into office and also the political attitude of governors at the time. Yeah. Um, And in many ways, this conversation, you know, it may be from two years ago, but in a very literal sense, the conversation you're about to hear is about today. Yes. It is about May 11th, 2023, a date with no real meaning, um, a date that stands in for the outright denial, actually, I think, of the meaning that we could have made from the last three years and millions dead. So. Mm -hmm. So with that, take care of each other. And stay alive another week. We'll see you then. February 25th, 2021. Welcome to the Death Panel. Thank you to all of our new patrons. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. For $5 a month, you get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, um, which come out on Mondays. You get access to our entire back catalog and a discount on merch. Um, Also, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Send episodes to your friends. I don't know. People ask us all the time, like, how can I help? And really, it's just post, please is yeah. really all, all I can yeah, say. Be part of the posting brigade, you know? <laughs> the street <laughs> Global team. Global posting you brigade. Know, remember those street teams? Never mind. Cut that <laughs> out. Anyways, so speaking of patron episodes, in July, we did an episode called The New Normal where we tried to explain the narratives, uh, framing, and, and actions that allowed COVID deaths to be so dramatically normalized. That was what, six months ago now? Seven? It's been a little bit since then, so I think it would be good. We were thinking it would be good to revisit. Well, and it's been a lot of death. How many deaths more? When we recorded that, the tally in the United States was at 142,000. And and this week, we've just sailed past 500,000. Yeah, and not to make this too US-centric, although a lot of the stuff that we'll be talking about in terms of making some sort of meaning from this situation uh, to the extent that we can, despite the fact that I think that as much as possible, the U.S. political economy wants to reject, uh, possibly the global (laughs) political economy wants to reject meaning in this uh, instance. Uh, But yeah, not to make it too U.S. centric, but the the EU as of uh, yesterday also passed 800,000 deaths. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the thing that we 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 sort of we're thinking about this term like normalization of death in the summer. And I feel like one thing we didn't really capture is just how variable and how many different ways there are to normalize death. I mean, in the summer, we were really talking about people in government trying to avoid responsibility for the fact that the virus was checked, kind of uh, going on unchecked. Mm-hmm. But now, but there's a different way in which one could normalize deaths. Uh, which is to say, not about sloughing off responsibility for why people are dying in the present, but mystifying and compounding and conflating the reasons that they died in the past, yeah. which actually f- performs a very different, I feel like, uh, political function. One is about trying to get leverage to do something else in the present, and the other is 
a kind of project of like moral absolution. It's a way of trying to get out of this without anybody having learned anything. Well, but also I think you're pointing kind of to a a really big divide and problem in this overall discussion, right? Which is that we do talk about, you know, we talk about this as a pandemic, but we do still talk about COVID-19 and the experience and all this stuff as this sort of individual, uh, whether it's personal responsibility mm-hmm. all the way down to personal experience to like, it, you know, it may be this huge figure, this huge amount of cases and this huge amount of deaths, but then every one of those is still treated as this like individual experience and not some sort of like collective event. And mm-hmm. at, at the same time, yeah. it's like, you know, we, I think, I, I think so much of this, and this was a problem already when we were talking about it at 142,000 deaths, when we were talking right. about how those, how that number gets naturalized, how it gets normalized of like how many deaths were happening. And, you know, we've talked about this most recently again, when, when we were in a period where we were having, 4,000 deaths a day as, you know, as actually captured and logged. But that that problem, that tension of having uh, this huge number of 500,000 deaths, mm-hmm. right? And then the it's almost like the bigger that it gets, the more difficult it is to, to like synthesize what it actually means. Yeah. Um, I think this was put really well in, I've been reading Mike Davis's book about the avian flu and sort of right at the beginning, he talks about this. Um, and I think the way that he puts it is really apt uh, quote no one mourns a multitude or keens at the graveside of an abstraction mm-hmm. and I think that what yeah. we have basically is this ever-growing abstraction mixed yeah. with these concerted efforts really to keep that in the realm of abstraction right and this sort of process of individuation that we we talk about all the time on this show it, it is one of the most constant drivers behind the abstraction and behind this kind of demotivation of of action too because when you take something that is terrifying like covid it like covid is objectively terrifying right like a lot of illness is objectively terrifying this is i don't know i feel like that's pretty surface level right but it's worth stating when you take something this scary that people have so little conception of how to be safe around it right and you gaslight them and you tell them it's because it's their, you know, their neighbor is hanging out with people in their living room and you do everything you can as a society to push away the idea that there could be something po- like fundamentally wrong in our political will or in our political economy. I would right. Say. Yeah. Or in our, yeah. You, you, what you do, to, what you do to people is you make them feel alienated. You make them feel powerless. You make them feel responsible. And this at the end of the day is just fueling the lack of like the lack of acknowledgement of what's actually going on, which is like only maintained by this like constant social reproductive process of abstraction. Yeah. I I kept thinking of the phrase, which I have to imagine began in a pop song, but is I think with the beginning of the pandemic, I, I began seeing this phrase crop up more and more as a way of describing how to experience social distancing, which was the phrase alone together. <laughs> um, and uh, the meaning of that, you know, ostensibly the way it was used, like in the early days of the pandemic was like, one could be alone in your house, but connected to other people virtually in some way. But the way that it increasingly registers for me now is that we can have this collective experience of death, but there's no way of talking about what we might collectively do about it. We more, you know, there's a a candle lighting ceremony, flags are at half staff, 
and we, you know, mourn publicly the 500,000 dead with a moment of silence, we depict their deaths with, a, you know, used to be names, but now as a scatter plot on the front page of the New York Times, which is right. one of the most just just worst images that I've ever seen. It just just even well, as a matter of basic statistical presentation makes no sense. Well, as a representational um, choice, my God, I mean, it says everything, yeah. right? It, yeah, well, it right. goes from it goes from individuation quite literally to you know, well, fuck, I don't know, like, just throw a chart up. Like, right. How are we going to do that? Like, we're mm-hmm. not going to, we're not going to print all of these names, et cetera. You know? Yeah. The, the ironic thing is that there's this still a sense that, uh, COVID is one's, you know, the individual risk one takes on and, uh, you know, maybe what one's own characteristics, prior behaviors, demographic, uh, characteristics, uh, you know, uh, project onto it. Um, but at the same time, the the representation of people as as dots uh, suggests that like the only good thing about individuation, the idea that pe- the people are people with names and lives and like people that they've left, is sort of abstracted from that entirely. And so it's when people ask this question of you know uh, how how does this end or how do we know when it's like quote uh, over one issue is that like there's no sense of a common goal that we should be striving for it's like when can we go back to the not even thinking about the possibility that there would be something we'd have to do collectively when right. can we go back to just pure you know negative liberty uh in, in in thinking about this and i think that's been reflected from the beginning in the way that all of the gating criteria and plans were laid out Gating criteria only ever went one way. Mm-hmm. There was no sense that like cyclicality uh, was going to be a part of it. No sense that like uh, at some point we would have to change the way that we were um, or change the way that our institutions worked or whatever. And so like I, I have to imagine that like there's that is something that will like fundamentally define the way that the future works. And like uh, the idea that like though there are four different futures and like maybe it could be just tragic business usual that presupposes that people will understand and, right. ca- and, and actually continue to care uh, yeah. and, and, and don't have all of the incentives in the world to engage in collective um, not not just forgetting because I think that's part of it, but also the treatment of the past is something to mourn rather than to understand or to learn from. When you mentioned gating criteria, you're talking about like phased reopening stuff or Yeah, the phased reopening things. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting actually when you when you mentioned the the gating criteria, it it struck me as odd early on that when we were starting to see the first plans released around April and May of quote unquote reopening uh strata, right? You only see thresholds for moving forward really. You see some people, like I guess to Bill de Blasio's credit, it sounds weird to say that, to Bill de Blasio's credit early on, New York City did actually have like backwards gating criteria that they were really touting out and and talking about publicly. But even just like, you know, by July, by by September, when you start to really hear the school reopening debate hit a fever pitch, you stop seeing people acknowledge that we need a plan for what happens if we're back in COVID because the the primary social repro- reproductive responsibility of all these lawmakers has been to create, like, I guess, hope and 
and forward moving momentum, not to actually focus on on dealing with this sort of extended protracted uh, middle that's absolutely devoid of meaning, which is actually where we're where we're at and right. where we've been for a year. And this is this is something that I think is inherent in the way that we as a that we as a society <laughs> think about illness in the in the abstract, right? Which is that you get sick, you get health care, and maybe you don't get health care and you die, but you get health care and then you either die or you're better. But this virus and the way that viruses work and the way that epidemics work is absolutely not like that. Most people's experience of illness is absolutely not like that. The idea that illness is a discrete event that is experienced for a moment and then you return to normal ignores the actual realities of how the body experiences illness, what's going on in the body, and also like how we're experiencing COVID. And I think that there's this sort of decay in the idea of like permanence that is really fundamental to to a lot of the cover that people are building for themselves, the indemnity, right? This sort of like idea that any moment now, COVID will be over. But We've been living under this assumption of any moment now, COVID will be over. We'll find that silver bullet for over a year at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think maybe this would be a good time to sort of sketch out a trajectory of how we went, like how basically how we got to here, because I think it's been like this kind of ever moving target in terms of how this normalization process has has been sold. And yeah, and I also, yeah, I think we're, we're going to be in firmly in the realm of elite uh, discourse and like elite yeah. framings of this, but and which which one might say like who cares? I don't want to read the Atlantic, and I never will. Which <laughs> God bless you, you shouldn't. Um, I try, but not like to. yeah, I try very hard not to. But I think the reason that this matters, among uh, one reason among others, is that at some point, the federal government will have to decide when the pandemic is over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while I think we might want that decision to be grounded firmly in some sort of epidemiological reality, I think the very real possibility is that this determination will be fundamentally like sociological and and political. Absolutely. That that there will in fact be different sort of endings. And and all of that matters for the programs that we've created um, that, that, relief of various kinds is contingent on. And so like I I I want to do this in part because I, I think we need to think about who is driving us towards which sunset. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's been this narrative from the beginning of COVID that a lot of the death that we're seeing is people that were gonna die anyway. Right that COVID deaths were being pulled from the future. And so I that think... they were somehow inevitable. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, that these were deaths that, that or, were preordained to happen. We're just like cashing in on the deaths a little bit early. Yeah. More crassly to quote one edgelord from uh, last year that, uh, quote, we know who is at risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe they had a secondary condition. Maybe they were older. Maybe they were overweight. Maybe they had high blood pressure. Maybe they had diabetes. And there's been this this uh, drive to to prove and certify as much as we can um, that people who died from COVID almost 
not that they deserved it, but that it makes sense that they died. And and this whole making sense of the death has been about trying to to draw a line in the sand between the people who have died and the people who have not died that doesn't place the blame on the political economy, that doesn't place the blame on those in power, but places the blame on the individual and their individuated experience of health, which has dictated their outcomes in this pandemic. Yeah, this is the idea. I think in, in Britain the um, or in the UK, the line that COVID skeptics, I guess, were using was that uh, more people were being referred to COVID deaths if they died with COVID, not because of it. Right. And which just, which fundamentally misunderstands the way that the classification uh, of deaths occurs and like where cause, how cause of death is actually uh, produced through like causal linkages between things. But, you know, that, that thinking still persists. The idea that like, because you have emphysema and you had COVID, uh, that somehow your death should not be listed as a COVID death, even if COVID was the thing that actually produced the uh, symptoms that that led you to die. Like that that thinking, I think it's not the kind of thing you're going to pick up in like surveys, but I think it is still out there latent in the population. Yeah, well, you know, it's like it's um, cause of death of most convenience, right? I mean, <laughs> now I think I think if if there's one thing in terms of uh, the uh, understanding of public health that uh, I think is probably. I mean, there. I think there are a number of things related to pandemics and public health and the political economy that have sort of like filtered up as as like watchwords or like terms that I think a, a broader, a much broader section of the general public understands now. But mm-hmm. um, among them is the term comorbidity, right? Uh, right? Which you know, obviously, there are things like if you die from, let's say the flu and you have a heart condition, mm-hmm. you know, it's possible that you could be coded as one of the like 600,000 deaths a year from cardiac conditions, right? Um, as opposed to like complications from from the like, flu, the flu right. et cetera. Um, when I say of, of most convenience, I, I mean that it like creates this uh, scenario where you can, you know, you, you essentially get to tell the story that you want with the data right. that you get, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, one thing that I, I can't, stop thinking about is just, you know, we have all these different systems of labeling that try and make meaning and try and help us understand and find patterns in, you know, the things that happen to human beings in the course of a natural life. But we act as if these meanings almost are devoid of any sort of bias or (laughs) beyond manipulation because there's this sort of like false idea that what is on the death certificate and what is being reported is somehow empirical. That that ignores so many of the factors that are going on in this making of meaning process where we say, you know, what is actually going on when we say someone who died as a result of getting the flu died of heart failure, right? We're, we're minimizing the flu as something that we need to take social responsibility for, ultimately. Right. And we're seeing this process happen in a way that moves forward and backward in time right now when it comes to COVID. It's not just one fixed revision. It's this sort of constant blanket revision of both directions and time. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I want to... Can I make... This might be a, a, a sidebar, but uh, I think it's useful. So the... Deaths from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, 
Mm. That there was that big controversy, you know, Trump said like all of these people didn't die. But like the reason that those deaths were not recorded initially was actually sort of <clears throat> somewhat more mundane, which is that the death certificates which were used to produce the first count the Puerto Rican government released, um, people didn't put hurricane in the death certificate, which the CDC, right. you know, uh, recommends that you do. Now, here's the interesting thing. Eventually, the statistics were revised and you got a much better, you know, projection of the number, which is like in the thousands, obviously. But that didn't actually change anything either uh, because right. the money was still not forthcoming from Congress because Puerto Rico has no representation in Congress. And I, not because we didn't have the numbers right, which suggests that like something is going on here that's not just about sort of the expert understandings or the, the many foibles of, you know, coding and labeling deaths. What's going on here is in part a social process of coding, mm-hmm. right? What uh, deaths uh, matter uh, and what exactly is the acceptable political response. I mean, I'm biased, but I think part of the reason why this this process happens is because we have some fundamental issue with illness as a, as a social construct. And, and I think what we're seeing in COVID in particular, both with deaths, but also in, in terms of long COVID, is this problem with our fundamental conception of how illness works in the body and how illness works as a social factor too. Because You would think that with the amount of people with long COVID, right, that you would see some recognition of that that suffering and some sort of political will or motivation to ameliorate some of the things that are exasperating it, like, you know, making sure that people who are discharged from the hospital can get oxygen. You have incredibly high rates of people who are hospitalized for COVID, who are discharged, who are dying after they're discharged. This should warrant some reexamination of our discharge procedures, of our home support procedures. How are we checking in with patients? How is charting going? What's going on with primary care? But of course, this is like absolutely never on the table. No one is discussing this in like a, a large way. And my own experience of like chronic protracted illness has been that people really have a hard time with the idea that something relating to illness can go on indeterminately and they don't really deal with that temporality well. People want illness to be over or kill you and they don't really like having to deal with this long protracted idea of like this sort of threat and they don't really know how to talk about it. And I and I think we don't have a lot of policy to deal with it. We don't have a lot of motivation or will to deal with any of this kind of stuff. And that sort of bias, which underlies so many aspects of our political economy, is just absolutely rampant right now. Yeah. And this was, I think, if you were to go back and read news coverage from the spring, this was one of the more dominant themes, right? The idea that, well, this is the number of deaths, this is the number of cases. But when you look close up, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity, which is true. But then the move was that the explanation for the heterogeneity could not somehow rest in decisions that uh, people who had like governing authority uh, could right. have made about protecting those people. That in a sense, 
those people were the people who were predisposed to uh, to die, whether or not they were like in a nursing home or living in a a community where there was like community transmission, that somehow that that was all baked into the cake and that there was nothing anybody uh, could do. Now, I, I think that was sort of the first phase, but I think over time, at least in public discourse, whether or not that lasted in the minds of many people, I, I will never know. And I've not seen good survey evidence to su- you know on it to suggest, but I think it did. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my sense. And just, I've, I've, I've had conversations with people in which such utterances were made in, in recent weeks. Right. Yeah. Um, but the phase that we moved to, I, I don't think that that phase lasted that long. I mean, at least in terms of elite discourse, uh, I think that at some point the sort of discourse evolved towards something else, uh, something closer to, you know, it all happens so fast and, uh, you know, regardless of why people died, like uh, there, there were just things that we didn't know and could not have done. Right. I, I think that's a really important point. Um, and I think that this line of like, oh, it all happened so fast. And like, if, if only we could have known, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, before basically there was a huge outbreak in the United States, there was this email chain among a bunch of public health people and clinical researchers at a variety of hospitals across the country, looking at the data coming out of Wuhan, looking at the data coming out of Italy, which if you recall at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was the whole thing of like, oh God, the US could be like Italy in two weeks. Um, And what what they were doing is there, before there was a confirmed case in New York City, and when there were only a few confirmed cases around the United States, one of them wrote the following. And when uh, when the term NPI is used here, that's non-pharmaceutical intervention. And think of this as, you know, when we talk about lockdowns and things like that, a lockdown, uh, like a paid, you know, everyone stay at home lockdown uh, is an example of a non-pharmaceutical intervention that we've advocated for. They're not, you know, th- these are, you know, kind of technocratic, whatever public health people, they're not necessarily like they weren't explicitly advocating for something like that, but they were talking about how Italy had implemented a court on sanitaire like late or lockdown late. So this is in one of the emails again from, I think this one may be from March 2nd, uh, quote, we usually think of the window for implementing NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions as before 1% prevalence in the population. But this disease would be predicted to have more than 80% asymptomatics. That's, you know, back of the envelope math for them at the time. Um, So the threshold is really 0.2% prevalence of any symptoms, including very mild symptoms, symptoms. But the CDC criteria for testing, again, March 2020, the CDC criteria for testing is severe disease. So let's say that 1% of those who are infected have severe disease. That means our threshold is 1% times 1%, as in 0.01%. But it takes two weeks or so before a patient who is infected becomes seriously ill. Over the span of two weeks, plus the lag time for testing, the outbreak could have at least three doublings. That may be conservative. So we are really talking about a threshold of close to 12 serious cases per 1 million. So basically they go, they go on and they say that actually like looking at a couple of other factors, what you would actually want to do is implement something like a cordon sanitaire. They're literally later in the email chain talking about, is it possible to like form a blockade around Santa Clara County 
in California. Right. Might have been a like, good idea. Yeah, which might have been a good idea, right? But well, um, and yeah. they're saying it's what, the, and it's they, what and cities did in uh, 1917. In some cases, what they what they sorry what they go on to say uh, is basically that not just 12 cases per million. That probably you would want to do something like that at one case per million because of the amount of asymptomatic spread. If you wanted to actually prevent a pandemic, to the point that later in a, in a subsequent email, only a few through the chain, one of them says six cases confirmed in Seattle were too late. It's interesting that we've been so resistant to to doing any sort of shutdown in the United States because it's not like these tools are new uh, fangled inventions, right? The idea of trying to isolate people when they are ill with a contagious disease that is spreading throughout the population is one of our only tools that we have to actually fight disease. If you think about the development of what quote unquote modern medicine is, right? If you look back to where our ideas about care and healing and quote unquote cure have actually come from, being able to keep people away from each other when there is something spreading through the population is like our only tool for the most part. It is our best tool. And what we've seen writ large since the beginning of the pandemic is an absolute refusal to acknowledge that that is what needs to happen, right? Despite the fact that, as I already saying, you have a lot of people pointing out, but there was this decision made early on, I think, that it was already too late. Yeah. And people threw up their hands and it's interesting because those emails uh, actually remind me of I, uh, early in February, I was going back and reading documents about when, basically when they got the edge on tuberculosis, when the medical establishment sort of figured out how to stop tuberculosis from spreading so horribly, they actually went back to like early Greece architecture examples to mimic these like incubation wards where really the idea behind a lot of this like early medicine was isolating people. And there were like about 300 years where we just stopped doing that. Right. And you sort of see that same refusal to acknowledge these like tactics that are so easy and accessible and so proven through centuries of use. Right. And we just, for whatever reason right now, we we live in a time where these things just cannot happen seemingly under our political economy. Yeah. Well, I, that, that that's very, very, I want to be very specific about this. Like when the, the narrative that there was nothing we could have done, which I think is in certain ways a far more effective narrative uh, to avoid responsibility uh, for COVID than the individuation one. Because the individuation one, it's... You know, for a certain stratum of uh, politician, that's icky. I mean, it's first of all, I mean, it is very clearly has racist implications um, that a number of politicians don't want to, you know, be be, you know, charged with. Um, And and it, you know, it doesn't sort of jibe with, I, I think, the the you know, the idea that maybe there's some responsibility that, uh, you know, it's it's not exactly the Ayn Rand meets Sparta uh, <laughs> kind of thing that the, the full individuation thing is. It's a little bit it's more palatable. But I think the thing that it really presumes is when we say there's nothing more we could have done. That's always a conditional statement. Yeah. There's nothing more we could have done 
assuming that we do we, we did not and could not uh, want to change the way that a, a city works right as a as an economic unit as and as something that produces um you know, surplus product, uh, you know, or the, the role of a city in like capital accumulation. Um, it is like really important to see that that statement is always uh, conditional. So that what, when people are saying um, there was nothing more we could have done is that there's nothing more would have been worth what we would sacrifice in creating wealth uh, or, you know, creating this uh, gross domestic uh, product. And, and and I think that's important because it does show that the responsibility lies kind of less in any one particular individual's bad choices and more in the like very institutions and structural incentives we've set up mm-hmm. uh, for those people to avoid doing things that are valuable for public health. I mean, it's it's really important to note that that this iconography of like sophisticated public health health security regimes is a joke i mean the idea that you could have through this some you know very sophisticated appification and (laughs) you know smart policy and color-coded things you know be able to have your gross domestic product and and not have the pandemic too is absurd Right. Um, And it's not as if I I want to like push, you know, push firmly back in the idea that people were just uh, the the public was like the the vast masses just don't value their lives that much. Just they're just willing to sacrifice uh, their lives for, you know, normalcy or what passes for normalcy or their jobs. That's not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's not revealed in any uh, study that's actually to try to tap into what people believe. It's not what people believe, but they uh, people were presented with these choices because that is, you know, that 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 is what is sort of like uh, captured by that idea that there's there's nothing else we could have done. We weren't willing to. Right, and to I mean to really you know reinforce this again too. I think uh, you know reading this these emails and thinking of where uh, we were at the time. You know, the asymptomatic spread. thinking about that being sort of known and all of these people trying to sort of ring the ring alarm bells and i know that like how to put it one thing i I left unstated about this that cannot remain unstated is this group called itself fucking red dawn after the like 80s movie where the communists invaded the united states but (laughs) I, i digress oh and in one splinter off apparently of this of this email chain they called it red dawn breaking bad what but (laughs) anyway the um but still you know these are like these these are not just like random uh clinicians or whatever this isn't like people who are not like in in or around seats of power this includes people from like nih and hhs and like cdc and people who are like former fit like they're one of them is a prominent one was uh like a prominent uh health official under both george w bush and obama and stuff so it's like you know these these are not this is not like unconnected officials who just like threw on like a like a tag like red dawn or whatever (laughs) um to to do this little email chain but basically what i'm saying is thinking about like one of the things that they talk about in that specifically uh, and, you know, I guess, you know, we don't have to, like, spend too much time re- rebutting the, the like, we couldn't have done anything uh, line. But, like, one of the things that they talk about specifically in that is 
the uh, they there are, there's a lot of literature about in the 1918 influenza pandemic, the difference between the implementation of things like school closures in the cities of Philadelphia and St. Louis. I don't remember which one did uh, which faster, but basically, uh, you know, one of them sort of locked down immediately, and the other one waited uh, over a week to begin closing things like schools, to begin closing a bunch of other. Uh, things where people congregate. Um, and a lot of the like sort of like epidemiological historical literature shows that that led to a dramatic change. The, the faster, the faster closure changed, uh, things considerably. So knowing that this was being talked about March 2nd and remembering as I do the time when B and I were already in, you know, self-imposed isolation in our apartment, looking out and seeing like everyone just moving around going about their day before the stay at home order was put down in New York, for example. Um, you know, these are the, like, these are choices that you make when doing something like a cordon sanitaire becomes unthinkable because you can't slow the wheels of production mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Right. Sorry, I don't know if that was a productive rant. No, I please. think it was. And I think it's so important to actually to revisit this idea that there was a moment in time where people were talking about how to stop this from becoming a pandemic, because to hear that now is like seeing a ghost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because now a lockdown is unthinkable. Right. Like it's uncanny. No, well, a to cordon think. sanitaire, like a quarantine of a of, of a city. This was being written about. I remember sitting yeah. right. in a cafe before the stay at home order and opening up the newspaper and reading about cordon sanitaire, and people were talking about it quite seriously. Yeah. Well, and the fact now. You know, a year later, we're we're thinking about that and it feels uncanny. That's powerful translation in real time. That's the making of meaning right there, right? Like we've we've made this situation where the goal of like stopping COVID from ever happening is more fantastical, right, than what's actually going on right now. I think there is this this belief that that is being perpetuated that this was inevitable and that this was fated and that, you know, from the very beginning, people were saying the only people who are going to get sick are people who are already vulnerable of dying. Now, then we were saying, okay, the only people who are dying are the ones who were vulnerable. And now we've hit 500,000 deaths and we believe that a shutdown or a lockdown or a quarantine is impossible. Not only impossible is unnecessary. Unnecessary. This is unnecessary. And this doesn't do but, anything. Yeah. It's and not these, that it's not feasible. It's just not needed. No, but look, this is the, I think it's this too is too much. I, but I think this is the thing. The the it is not a coincidence that these things all rhyme with each other, right? Like not <laughs> not literally, but in terms of it, like ideologically, yeah. the idea of. Uh, oh, it's just it's just going to be the vulnerable populations that are just pulling death from the future has a direct translative effect to I, I, you know, uh, I don't know, professional managerial class person like feel uh, who have been like working from home since, you know, March of 2020 or something. Um, I think, Phil, Phil, you put this really well, like I experienced the pandemic as a sociological event or something. And it is. And, you know, it's like the pandemic is the snow globe that I'm regarding on my fucking shelf or something. Well, I mean, I think when I say that professional managerial class people experience the pandemic sociologically, I actually don't mean sociological as a pejorative term. 
uh, or a way of diminishing or demeaning the meaning of that experience. Uh, alienation is right. a profound thing that occurs uh, among that class. They might not worry as much about losing their job or, you know, not having, uh, you know, health insurance. They might be insulated economically, but the alienation from this has been real. And the fact that uh, our entire system of uh, childcare is like predicated on the existence of, you know, in-person schooling is, all, and that there's no assistance with childcare. I mean, that, that, that also is, I, th- I think is significant. And so like, yeah, it, it, you're never going to see that the, the additional work that those people do on the ledger books, that it's never going to be reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but it, it is, it is an important sociological change, but the problem, and, and I think you see that reflected in, you know, the Atlantic, uh, <laughs> for example, <laughs> is that that class also happens to be the interpretive class. They're the ones that uh, make the, the, that uh, really in a significant way, like construct the meaning of this thing. And when you're only talking about it as sociological um, or when you're, to be more accurate, prioritizing your own sociological experience of it over the rest of the thing um, and, and you're sort of focalizing that, then there's no, I mean, there's no way of, of actually learning anything from this. I mean, I've been, I spoke to a, a person I once knew who pursued a career in, in advertising who makes commercials now. And he said to me, he has the constant experience of, it fe- he said, it feels like I'm at a, a Broadway play and the actors have been arguing for 10 minutes on stage and the whole production has stopped And the audience is just staring at the actors arguing on stage. And the two people who were supposed to be in love in the play fucking hate each other. And the whole mirage is ruined. And this is like like a Beckett play. Right. I know. Yeah, exactly. Um, But he, I think, fundamentally, you know, is bought into the capitalist political economy and, and feels allegiance with that. Right. But he said it feels like all of the mirages that are all these metaphors that are in place, all these distractions, they're gone now. And it's hard to look at your life and hard to look at what you're doing and see any meaning there because yeah. the incentives and the distractions and the systems of amelioration and the systems of mitigating suffering, that all of those are gone now. Yes. And they people no longer have access to those systems of amelioration and it it really goes to show i think how the aesthetics of suffering and the the alienation of suffering motivates us and what kind of suffering motivates us because clearly the suffering that that you're seeing from people who you know cannot work from home or who have not been able to survive this who or who can, are worried about their jobs or who are losing their homes like the suffering that's so visible, right? That's seemingly the suffering that we have no motivation to ameliorate. Right. But the right. suffering of the this, this sort of suffering of those vis- very visible people who have political representation, who have representation in media, in in the economy, in they they mirror society, right? It's that suffering that we're trying to ameliorate. It's that suffering that we're trying to protect and avoid right now, not the suffering that's right in front of our faces. I mean, I also, I mean, not to p- 
put too fine a point in it or try to be too like provocative about it, but like I do think we're focusing mostly on the sociological aspects of this, but I also see those aspects as fundamentally linked to yeah, other forms of suffering. They, to, to not be able to see the connection between you uh, having to take on care tasks that you never had to do and feeling alienated from your friends and feeling that, that like the things that we use under capitalism to like make meaning of our lives, th- those are all gone. All of the creature comforts are gone or many of them are. And th- to see that as somehow not produced by capitalism, but maybe something else um, or the way that you've organized your life is to miss its connection with the suffering we are forcing on people who have never been able to leave work, have always uh, been, uh, you know, at the peril of, of, you know, not having childcare for their kids, uh, have always been a, a, just a, a minor incident away from medical debt. Like those things are the product of the same thing, but the, the way that they are, um, experienced and sort of socially coded, uh, has, has sort of riven them, uh, apart. Um, and, and I think that that's, right. that's the problem when, because I think now the way that this gets expressed is that they're need they're in, in the pages of, you know, the public sort of periodicals of, of note for, uh, for, you know, political uh, elites, the dictum is now to create some kind of metaphor for dispensing with a virus full stop. Right. Uh, or dispensing with the virus is like a political concern uh, full stop. And by doing that, by choosing to say, well, our baseline for evaluating this whole thing is the peak. We're going to treat the peak of the virus and its infectiousness and the deaths as the baseline from which we'll judge our success. And, you know, when we eventually come down from that peak, we'll say, we'll, you know, dust off our shoulders and say, gee, we did it. We scaled the mountain. We're down on the other side. Let's go have an opera ski. Um, but to, to miss the counterfactual as the baseline, to miss the idea that perhaps the peak did not need to be as high as it was. The, the suffering did not need to be as great as it was. To miss that is to implicate yourself morally in the entire morass. Right. And and to build on what you're saying, it's like, it's not, it, it's not that these two different types of suffering are separate, right? It's not that, you know, you have the, uh, the needs of one group being prioritized over the other. It's that these things are fundamentally connected because these people are in one community. We pretend that this type of suffering occurs in communities that have no interaction. And that's a fantasy, right? And to, to tie back to like what I said about this person that I used to know who works in advertising, you know, does he like to see that suffering that's right in front of his face that might not maybe materially impact him, but like he has to see all the time? What kind of alienation does that produce, right? This is not something that is like, it's not pleasant to uh probably feel like you're absolutely powerless while you watch people around you in every single media outlet suffer and you feel like you can do nothing about it. But that is fundamentally what this this 
metaphor of COVID and this meaning that we're making of COVID does. And the point is to pretend like these things are not connected, to pretend like the only suffering that makes people feel better if we address it is the one that directly materially impacts them, like as if people are evil and fundamentally self-serving and and selfish and all they want is their own needs addressed. We ignore the, the fact that like it makes people fucking sad and depressed to see people around them suffering, right? And we act like the amelioration of suffering in general is just way too big of a project because, you know, these things are all separate. And as long as we pretend that they're separate and that they're not connected, then the longer we continue to aid and abet this idea that we have done everything already and that we're just here passively observing COVID go through the population with no control back when we didn't have any medical technology in 500 BC. If we just kept people in separate rooms, they got a little better (laughs) and people survived. This is like the beginning of medicine, right? People back then also thought that if you let a snake lick your wound, these specially trained snakes they had in these same incubation centers. <laughs> I can send you guys a picture, an illustration of snakes it licking wounds. It's a very wounds. funny picture. It's hilarious. But, you know, they thought snake licking cured diseases. And they also thought that, you know, keeping people separate and keeping them in these sort of incubation chambers cured diseases. And it's like, well, what was actually working? Was it the snake? They had one of them right, at least. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and snakes so are it's, cool. <laughs> <laughs> snakes aren't. Snakes are cool. No, but I but I think this is the thing is that um, I think one of the sociological aspects. Now we're just fully talking about the the way that the meeting making class uh, understands. But I feel like one of the sociological aspects that's just pandemic or not is is central to that experience is to distrust your intuition about things and to instead right. yeah. listen and listen to and derive meaning from the sort of reduced like epistemic uh, understandings of the world. So like, for example, you might look at some statistic that's like, oh, well, actually, this is actually is like performs so much work sociologically in this world. But like, actually, wages grew between 2019 and 2020. Uh, (laughs) 6.9% for the median worker. It's like, yeah, they grew because most of the people who were in low wage work were out of work in 2020. So they grew because that baseline was just ripped away. But <laughs> the point is, you don't even need to think about that. Is If you are even casually observant about what's going on in the place where you live, in, in any remote way, if you are able to like listen to your senses as a way of experiencing the world, you will know uh, that things are not getting better for people. Um, but the point is, and, and I feel like that's the function of, of these sort of um, like the Atlantic essay and, and these other sort of like objects you can put in front of yourself is to somehow dissuade you from trusting your senses is to somehow yeah. dissuade you from trusting your senses and to instead believe that actually, you know, it's going to be like the flu and, and that means that everything will be fine. Um, and that like, that's the, that's the, the flu test. We'll just do the flu test. And like, uh, you know, if, if it's like the flu, then we're good. It's a horrible Um, line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think that, and that's like what I, I feel, um, is the most dangerous, not because I'm somehow, you know, above this or outside of it because I've 
I think felt some of those same impulses and I felt some of those same desires to, to sort of like move on and to, uh, of course. to you know, it, it, it's, I think quite a natural thing to say, not forgive necessarily, but certainly to forget. Um, and I, I think that's where some of the greatest danger lies, not merely because it might mean that we actually miss the opportunity that exists right now to right. alleviate more suffering. But then right. if we learn nothing the next time this happens, and it assuredly will, and probably, you know, not very long from now, um, and, and who knows, maybe even just epidemiologically, we won't, you know, it won't even be that much of a experience to change, but like that, that we will have learned nothing that we will do in fact, the same thing. And that, that, that we will become even more fully than we are now a society built around this huge sacrificial ritual. Right. Well, and we are still in a moment where we could at the very least curtail a huge amount of suffering, but instead, uh, the conversation has shifted to kind of like two things. One is literally this week, um, shortly, I think it was shortly before we hit the official 500,000 death tally. There were all these, uh, headlines about like economists think that there's going to be a boom after, um, you know, like that, that people that there's so much un like untapped spending power from all of this, from all of this time of everyone being shut in that like, there will be this huge economic boom after, you know, as we said at the very, at the like very early on in this, you know, unfortunately I think our political economy finds it much more convenient and easier to like erect a monument than it does to, you know, make any substantial proactive changes to like stop something from becoming the kind of thing that needs to be, you know, eulogized. But, um, you have, you have that. And then on the other hand, this thing, which, which you mentioned, Phil, uh, which is, I think really important, which is this emerging line, which the more that you see it, like, re like resist this or just, or call it out when you see it. But the idea that the goal in some way should be to reduce the impact of COVID-19 simply to about like what the flu uh, does every year um, to, to reduce it to the level of what itself is already like the influenza is already one of the leading causes of death. Right. Yeah. To reduce it to something like that, which is, is just, is basically to say to accept a forever pandemic, right. Yeah. To accept it, to just say that like, this is what, this is what, you know, like this is just reality now. Um, there are a lot of problems with that, including the fact that again, the flu is a leading cause of death. So if you're reducing it simply to that amount, you are basically saying, okay, so, you know, the amount of uh, the tragic amount of deaths that we already get from the flu every year, let's just double that, whatever, as though that's, as though that's like just fine. There's nothing that we should, as though it's not some, as though it's not our sort of like societal responsibility to do something about the flu deaths in the first place. Uh, among the problems with that is that if you know anything about how influenza deaths are counted, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> It's an influenza deaths every year, uh, at least in the United States and certainly in a number of other countries, but influenza, influenza deaths every year are famously poorly counted. They are essentially counted. It's a, you know, it, it is a complex process, but one of the ways that they are basically counted is through 
you look at excess mortality and there is there's essentially like formulas that you use to sort of deduce what the impact of the seasonal flu was that year right um what what my point is what you're essentially saying when you say like to essentially you know naturalize covid as though it is the same as the flu or naturalize covid as like acceptable at the same level of deaths as the flu is to basically say you know after a certain point surveilling the spread of this not really our problem anymore surveilling the amount of deaths to this certainly you know something you want to pay attention to a little bit but we can just calculate it best but you know we can just like do an estimate of it no i mean it's it the act of thinking that is involved in that is actually quite understandable right which is to say apparently we tolerate this number of deaths every year from the flu sociologically speaking it doesn't seem that the mass of people have any sort of problem with that Flu deaths are, for example, not correlated to presidential approval ratings in any meaningful <laughs> way. Yeah. No, no one is ever held to account and forced to, you know, uh, pay the piper uh, for flu deaths. In fact, look at the number of articles that are released every year about them. It's minuscule. Yeah. So by that, we can conclude that it doesn't really matter if we don't do anything about COVID as long as it's like that other thing that we don't give a shit about. Right. And I and think this is like, you know, this is the thing. I mean, this is not, this phenomenon is not limited though. It is mm-hmm. uglier of course with uh, viral diseases, but it is not limited to those diseases. The, right. the same phenomenon applies to the way that we think about the housing crisis, for example, yes. you know, after 2009, 2008, 2009, a crisis in housing existed for black Americans before that it when when it began affecting people that you know the media seems to care about that's when it became a crisis um and so like the same thing uh, occurs here um it's a crisis in only one sense covid's a little bit different in the sense that it's a crisis in only one sense it's a crisis in as much as it reduces the productive capacity of the economy. And now that we've demonstrated that we can get to a point where it essentially doesn't make a dent, that we can survive, that, that GDP can you know, even do quite well uh, with you know, a, a large number of people who are unemployed, a large number of people who are getting sick and dying, uh, you know, a mountain of bodies. It, it, GDP doesn't care. It, it's right. going to do fine because we, we've figured out uh, how to make that happen, then the crisis evaporates. Yeah. Also, like, again, to this this thing, this like sort of reality that we're creating, actively creating a reality where uh, which is like modeled off of what we already experience from influenza, from in other ways, like what we already experience with like HIV AIDS, right? Yes. Which is that like, so for example, you know, it, like it's widely understood with influenza by, you know, clinicians as well as like epidemiologists that one of the reasons why it's so difficult to count is a lot of people don't like a lot of people who have the flu like count cases much less count deaths is a lot of people who get the flu don't necessarily go seek medical attention i mean you might think perhaps one of the reasons that people don't do that they just try to ride it out at home like it's you know just a like a common cold or something or they, is go, to because, work. Or they go to work with it and, and continue to spread it is because like uh 
I don't know, maybe maybe you've set up your entire political economy to disincentivize seeking any sort of medical help or health treatment because it, you are so concerned that it will completely ruin you financially and ruin the rest of your life from like a medical bill, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the future that I I mean, I think we all have been and I certainly am like most concerned about is that it becomes like influenza, like HIV AIDS, where ideologically a huge section of American culture is already arrived at the point where like, oh, it's so sad. Oh, it's unfortunate. And, you know, oh, maybe there's some degree of like risk in my life. But the degree of, you know, continued substantive threat of immediate harm is unthinkable and unknowable to so many people. And they react even though it's violently to it, though. Even to people, to particular who are like well off, right? Yeah, is like unthinkable and and unknowable to them. Whereas, right, I I I think it's very important to think about how not to approach at a. I mean, and when I say how not to, I mean like intellectually. If you're thinking about this or like writing about it or you know, trying trying to like process this experience even, I think it's very important to trust your intuition about how you should feel about these things. It's a better guide, I think, than the bromides from experts that things are getting better and that help, you know, hope is just around the quarter. Because right. if you trust your intuition, well, your intuition, I think, I think, I think for most people, even people who are like, you know, professional managerial class, you know, the, your instinct should tell you that the crisis existed before COVID yeah. and that COVID brought it to light. COVID brought to light the crisis of having an economy that is so precariously balanced on this series of fictions about, you know, who, who takes care of whom and, uh, you know, what counts as a, um, you know, a productive and, uh, uh, you know, profitable workforce or even the idea that like, what is the appropriate amount of work that someone should uh, have to do for, for a particular uh, wage that all of these things were bound to fail us. And the, the risk that you still feel the the nagging sense that this could all happen again, that this could be worse, that this could, uh, the, the, the baleful influence of this could and will persist. That is what should be structuring your belief. And it's not, I don't say that because I think people should be, um, you know, uh, distrustful of, of, of expert opinions by any means. Yeah. Right. But what I think is useful is to think really hard about the causal story that's being told here. Because if you really think that it's just the fact that we didn't have a vaccine or that we were lacking an appropriate technical fix, um, that is the reason why so many people had to suffer and die, is the reason why so many people lost their livelihoods, is the reason why that uh, place that you like to go and eat is no longer open uh, is the reason why any, any number of like minor and in, even inconveniences that have collectively just put a damper on your life. If you think that the reason for that is that we didn't have this one technical fix for the pandemic, uh, the vaccine, or that we somehow it was just that like the, the instruments weren't set to the, like the right levels. 
if you think it's that and not the broader uh, set of institutional capacities we've set up and the uh, culturally speaking, the, the way that our state and our economy like force us to relate to one another. If you don't think that that is somehow responsible, you will be in trouble again. You will feel these terrible things again and you'll be waiting for a solution that is never going to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like saying we just need to find the right type of snake to lick the wound and everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I feel like this was a good uh, spiritual successor to that conversation in July because I feel like trying to to actually talk through what these meanings that we're like experiencing every day actually are constructed of has been really helpful for me personally for not feeling like I'm just losing my mind every day when I look at the news. So I always appreciate yeah, these sort of stock taking episodes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I actually don't know if I didn't like have this structured, this is how like, this is how um like, fu- like fucked up this like way of organizing society like is for my own mind is that like, if I didn't have this like structured moment in time where every week I had to have a conversation about this, like on tape, <laughs> I, I actually don't know what I would be. I think that I would just be like, I think I would feel, I mean, I don't know if it's more kind of hopeless, but I, I think I would just like, things would just be bubbling up inside me and I wouldn't really understand how, how to make sense of it. I would just sort of be plodding along. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I don't know if anything I said made sense, but like it certainly I, I feel like I, I have a better sense of what's going on. I mean, that, that that's kind of like the I feel that's the nature of not only these events, but also of the very and, you know, the way that these events show the structures that uh, like the structures of our political economy that we talk about all the time. Right. Is just that part of it is that there are that there is so much that it becomes easier to stop trying to sublimate it or something. You know what I mean? It like makes it easier to... It gives me a way of avoiding every temptation I have to adhere to the dictum of Oasis to not look back in anger. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do look back in anger. Do indeed look back in anger. (laughs) The moral of the story is look back in anger. Back and forward. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Thank you for listening to the show. Please become a patron, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We really appreciate the support. Appreciate that everyone um, does enjoy listening to the show. So yeah, leave us a rating review, like and subscribe. Thank you for listening. And as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Great. Bye-bye.